We get to turn to the book of 1 Timothy in the New Testament. We have been in the midst of a study in the last few weeks, which we've likened it to uh, pulling out an uh, instruction manual. You know those things that we all avoid, if at all possible? We get that thing that we put together and don't look at the instructions, right? We don't, we don't pull out a manual until we need it, until something goes wrong, and then we're like, oh, how do I fix this, or whatever it may be. Well, I pray that in the church we handle things a bit differently in the sense that we say, hey, let's, let's always be willing to take a good look at what God has told us about how we are to function together as the body of Christ, as the household of God, which... Paul tells Timothy in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. That's really the intent of why Paul is writing. He's saying, Timothy, I'm writing to you so that you, as brothers and sisters, might know how you ought to behave in the household of God. Now, we realize that as we pull out the manual, that there are some parts of it that are instructive, not necessarily, you know, super applicable to everyday life, in a sense, if you will, but... um, applicable for us as a local church to kind of examine how do we align ourselves as a local church here by the name of Crossroads? How do we align ourselves with the Word of God and do that well, noting that we will be accountable uh, to God one day for that? Uh, I'm very much aware of that in my role of noting that, boy, there will be a day where I give an account for every time I have stood before you as a pastor and opened up the Word of God. And uh, so to seek to do that well and to say our goal is to understand what God has given to us, not make the Bible say what we want it to say, but to do well to understand what God has given to us and thereby letting it be what forms and shapes our thinking and our hearts and how we live. Last week, we engaged in a very difficult passage, difficult by way of interpretation, meaning what does it actually say, what is what is Paul stating here? What is God's message for us in it? And difficult by application, meaning once we uh, have a good understanding of it, then, well, how does this look kind of in the everyday aspect of local church ministry? The context of that particular text was in regard to the role of men and women in the local church. And even though difficult, we know that by using solid what's called hermeneutical or Bible study principles, We can do well to understand what God has said and thereby have instruction as to how we are to function together as the body of Christ. So this is not, today's message is not 10 steps to help you deal with your anger or whatever that, you know, whatever it may be. It's it's collectively for us. I hope you don't feel disengaged in this because we are the body of Christ, right? You are the church. We are the church together. You don't, you, you didn't come today to attend church. You came today to gather with the church. Does that make sense? Right, So we need together, as the church, seek to understand God's word in these instructive ways. And so the role of men and women uh, in the church, Paul, as we noted, and if you weren't here last week, I'd really encourage you to jump on the app or online and, and listen to that so you have the full context. But Paul appeals to the order of creation in Genesis 1 and 2, as well as the temptation of the serpent toward Eve in Genesis 3, Uh, And Paul appeals to that to give instruction as to what is the role of men and women. And we noted that what the serpent did was, in a sense, flip God's created order on its head by approaching Eve. 
And uh, Adam failed in his role as the guardian of truth and also fell fell prey to temptation. And so this is what Paul appeals to as he instructs us and describes uh, that in the context of the local church, he says that women are not to teach men, nor are they to have authority over men. And in today's culture, that's, that's a difficult teaching and one in which we need to do well to understand. But we do feel this aligns with our belief that God has created roles for men and women in marriage and in the local church. In other words, it's a consistent pattern of Scripture. Uh, listen to these two portions of Scripture that just kind of all I'm doing is trying to give us an understanding. Of, hey, the Scripture teaches of this order uh, and of this pattern, if you will, throughout. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3 which uh, Paul is writing this as well. He says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Later in Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 25, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself a savior, uh, its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also uh, wives should submit in everything to their husbands, husbands, uh, in return, love your wives, right? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So the leadership of a husband is to be sacrificial, is to be a servant leader, not a dictator, uh, and so on. So we see this pattern all throughout that, that really is in reference, I think, to going back to the very created order of God we find in Genesis. Both male and female created in his image, equally valued, e- equally significant in the ministry of God, but God has established roles, and we see that within the local church as well. So uh, now one of the things uh, about last week, we did not get to verse 15. So let me take a moment to comment on it. Um, and again, acknowledging the difficulty of this entire passage, but this verse in particular, verse 15, uh, is, is one of the most difficult, not only within the pastoral epistles, uh, but I think within the, the New Testament itself. But again, we can, we can do well to discern it. Uh, Let me give you uh, kind of uh, a few ways in which this verse is understood, and and then I'll give you my thoughts on it. Let's read verse uh, 13, 14, 15 for the context. It says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and, and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self control. So uh, the word yet in verse 15, meaning it's a continuation of thought from uh, the previous two verses. That's why we read those all together. And again, if you didn't hear last week's message, please go back and listen to it so that you understand uh, our perspective on this. But what Paul is re- is, is appealing to Genesis 1 through 3, um, and when he says, yet she will be saved, uh, part of the question surrounding this verse is, well, is that, a, is that a spiritual salvation? Are we talking about salvation, meaning the gospel? Are we talking about a, some manner of physical salvation or some manner of physical protection that Paul is referencing here uh, through childbirth? Well, some say that what is spoken of here is that giving birth is the way of salvation for a woman. Uh, I think that overemphasizes the distinct role of women, right? Only women God created to give birth. Uh, but in this case, uh, if, that, if that were the case, that this was a way of salvation for woman, then salvation is offered, uh, it's limited to uh, a woman who gives birth. Um, the word, uh, and that would limit the salvation of women only to those who are able to bear children, right? And this simply does not align with any other teaching of Scripture in regard to the gospel or of salvation. 
Uh, so I find that a very difficult interpretation. Uh, others would say that this is referring to the specific birth of Jesus, uh, the seed, if you will, that was um, promised in Genesis chapter 3. If you're familiar with that context, after Adam and Eve sin, uh, God uh, uh, gives out some consequences of that sin that we'll look at in a moment, but God also, uh, also uh, in his grace, like immediately when sin enters the world, like God gives to us this promise and a hope that there will be a seed uh, from the woman who will one day be uh, a blessing to all the nations and who will one day be the, the Savior. And so God immediately gives to us, like, hey, there's going to be an answer for this, right? And so some think, well, this is uh, in reference to that specific birth of Jesus. Um, there is a, in the Greek language, there is a definite article before the world, uh, the word uh, childbearing. And so um, uh, some have said, well, that's, that's relating to this particular birth of Jesus, um, kind of along the lines of Galatians chapter 4, says when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Um, and so some have concluded that, and certainly all of that is, is true, that a seed would come, and that's Jesus, and he's our Savior. I just find that difficult within the context of the passage. Perhaps, to me, a better understanding is that Paul is alluding to one of the specific consequences of sin, that God expressed to woman. So along the lines of his appealing to Genesis 1 through 3, um, fitting with that, he continues that thought. And here's one of the things that God said to the woman specifically. He said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Now, when God said that to Eve, we don't know exactly the difference, right? Because we don't know what it was like prior to sin. Uh, in fact, I don't think Adam and Eve did either, because if we track, it seems reasonable to think that Adam and Eve didn't have children before they ate of the fruits of the tree, and so they wouldn't have known either. But what God says, what we do know, is that the pain of bearing and giving birth to a child became significantly greater. And so the consequences God states to uh, the woman and to the man are reminders of sin. Why did God do that? Why does Genesis 3 spell these things out for us? Why are they important? Because I think as we see these things in life, what they are to be for us is reminders of our desperate state of sinners and that we stand in need of a Savior. And so whether it's the pain of childbirth or the others to the, to the man, what did God say? God said, well, the ground is cursed because of you. And in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. And by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. So as we think about the hard work in life, right, the labor of that, and I don't think any of us necessarily find it, find it particularly favorable to, to, you know, to go out and, and, and work in such a way uh, that, that brings soreness and tiredness and all of that, right? God, as, as we experience that, what's that to do? It's to remind us of like, man, this is present because of the reality of sin in the world. Um, and for men in particular, as we look at how that has has played out in life, um, pattern I think is, is common that we see either in men in particular a laziness toward work or we see uh, a workaholism, right? We, we find our identity in work, we find the pain of work something we avoid or we find it difficult in the sense that we pour ourselves into it and that's where we find our identity and, and so we work. So, um, so as God lays out the, the consequence of sin to woman, it's pain and childbearing and childbirth, and that your desire will be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. 
So when Paul says, yet she will be saved through childbearing, I believe he's referring to that first consequence of sin uh, given to women, um, the pain in childbearing and childbirth. Now, I'm no historian on women and childbirth, right, uh, thankfully, uh, but I don't think it takes an expert either to uh, realize the pain and suffering that has come in this way. I mean, all of us see this, and some of you have experienced um, the hardship of it, that pain, whether it's infertility, um, whether it's discomfort while baby is in the womb, whether it's literal pain during childbirth, whether it's miscarriages, whether it's stillbirths, whether it's numerous complications in pregnancy, whether it's the death of a mother during delivery. I mean, we, we see the, the, the pain present in this regard. And although fairly recent developments in medicine have helped reduce some of the complications of that pain, these things still exist and are not completely unavoidable. So even the need for these medicines and treatments ought to be a reminder to us of the consequence of sin and the presence of sin. My wife and I were reminded of that just a bit ago, a few weeks ago, when our granddaughter turned two. And for those of you that were around two years ago, uh, you know that our daughter-in-law had great complications in that childbirth, and um, we are thankful and grateful. In some ways, I view it as a miracle of God that she is still with us, realizing that in surgery she needed 16 units of blood to, to stay alive. And so I uh, was reminded of the reality of that pain just a couple weeks ago as we thought about the second birthday of our granddaughter. And so that bringing into this mix, right, that... that uh, what is Paul saying here? I think as he's, as he's um, following his train of thought, he's saying that despite the fact that this consequence of sin remains, this pain in childbirth, that, there, that the salvation through Jesus Christ is greater, um, that the pain and suffering gives way to salvation and healing in Jesus Christ. What Jesus did on the cross doesn't take away the pain multiplied in childbearing and childbirth, right? All of the consequences of sin remain present for us, both male and female. But, but the power of Christ in forgiveness and redemption is greater than the pain that we experience as a result of sin. That's the gospel. And so, uh, as Paul is, is commenting here, they will be saved through childbearing, right? In, in other words, in, in, despite that it exists and it will continue to exist, um, there is salvation. And he goes on to say, if they, now he moves from the singular she to they, plural, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So that may sound to us like salvation becomes conditional on these things. But really, quite honestly, like this is the gospel, right? What does the word tell us? That we are saved by grace through Faith. So the fact that faith is present here makes total sense in alignment with what we see elsewhere of the gospel. Love and holiness, uh, fruit of our salvation. Uh, Self-control, the fruits of, of salvation. In other words, that this, these things are authentic expressions of a transformed life. As James tells us uh, as well, faith without works is dead, right? It's not that our works save us, our faith in Christ saves us, our faith alone saves us, but yet these things become expressions of one who has been changed by Jesus. And so Paul is just simply reflecting upon the, upon the fact that faith and love and holiness, self-control, those things are present uh, in salvation as well as as a result of salvation. So um, I think 
in thinking in those terms, to me, uh, we have a, a, at least a good bit of understanding of what Paul is, is expressing here and thankful for it. Amen? That salvation is uh, available despite the presence of our sin. And the Bible tells us our sin deserves death. Death. Uh, none of us deserve today. None of us deserve the breath that we're breathing. None of us deserve the abilities that we have in life. None, none, because of our sinfulness, what do we, we deserve death. But God says, man, in spite of that, right, even in the presence of your sin, I give to you a wonderful gift of my grace. And I will restore you. And I will grant to you without any merit of your own to the, the, the righteousness of Christ and so on. And there's so much stuff we could talk about and that of the blessings and benefit of our salvation. But I think that's what Paul is referencing. So let's, let's continue on uh, in two specific roles within the church as they flow out of what Paul has just expressed regarding men and women. Uh, these roles are elders and deacons. First uh, Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 and verse 8. Uh, introduce these in this text. He says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Deacons, likewise, verse 8 says, must be, and then goes on to list some qualifications. So these two roles are spoken of specifically uh, in the New Testament. Let me give you one example. Places like Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, which uh, Paul is writing to the church in Philippi. He says, Paul and Timothy... Servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. So here we see these two roles mentioned specifically together. We see that in other places as well. Uh, We understand that in Acts chapter 6, the distinct responsibilities of these two roles uh, begin to take shape. Remember, Acts is that book of transition, if you will, from Old Testament and, and, and God now making salvation available to both Jew and Gentile and so on, the death, resurrection of Christ. And, and uh, so as people were gathering, as Christ followers, they began to note like, hey, there's some things we have to pay attention to here. There's some things that are, are, are lacking. One of them was that the fact that they noticed that the widows among them were not being cared for well. And in response, in Acts chapter 6, verse 2, it says, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. That's not a diminishing of that role. That's simply saying they're, they're, not one person can do everything, right? So we have, to, we have to begin to divide this out so that we can do things well. Verse 3, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole congregation. So as they walked through, everybody was like, yeah, that sounds like a great plan. Let's do that. And so that's what they did. And we begin to see these two roles take shape, one of spiritual leadership and one of serving, actively carrying out the work of the ministry. And so in Acts, we see that formation. We see these responsibilities become clear, and then we also see this shift from apostles, uh, those in the early days that God specifically uh, uh, called to, to, to establish the church, and we know that the church was founded on the, the, the teaching of the apostles, and so uh, we see this shift from apostles to elders and overseers um, as described. So what is an elder and overseer? Uh, there are three terms described, uh, used to describe these spiritual leaders in the church. 
if you listened to my video on Friday and you took opportunity to go and read Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 38, you saw kind of a description here of conversation between Paul and the elders at Ephesus where uh, these various terms were used kind of all throughout and used synonymously. So if, if you want to go to Acts 20 later today and do that, you can. But there's three terms. Episcopus is the first. Uh, sometimes translated bishop, usually translated overseer. This particular term indicates responsibility and authority, overseer. Right? There's responsibility entailed with that. Uh, there's uh, presbyteros, which is a second term, which means elder or presbyter, uh, which indicates maturity in life. And that's not necessarily regarding age, although it is a word that refers to elders, meaning age, but that's not necessarily the intent here. It's talking about uh, a maturity in life. Timothy himself was considered a young man, but yet we see him the leader of the church here in Ephesus. Um, so it's not necessarily uh, age-related. It's maturity in life. It's maturity in relationship with Christ. That's an elder. Uh, and then the third word, uh, poimne or poimnion, which is um, that, that term referencing the, the shepherd of a flock. Um, pastor is where we get that term. And so that indicates care and leadership of the local church. So these terms combined like help indicate for us, like what do we mean when we use the term elder to describe these spiritual leaders, those who have uh, been given authority, those who demonstrate a, a spiritual maturity in life, and those who exhibit care and leadership among God's people. Now, it is widely accepted that these three terms are used interchangeably to describe the same office or the same responsibility in the church. Now, if you would like a, a memorable way to kind of like, what does an elder do? Like, as we talk about elder, like, what, is, what does an elder do? Here's, I thought this was memorable and wanted to pass it along to you. I found it from a, a man named Anthony Hilder. And he phrases it this way, that really an elder is to guide, govern, and guard. Guide, govern, and guard. Kind of memorable that way. Um, guiding, meaning the mission, vision, strategy of, of ministry in a local church, governing, uh, the culture of the church, the leadership of the church, and guarding that which is of sound doctrine, protecting the teaching of the apostles and of Christ within the local church. So that's, that's perhaps a way of, of thinking about what is the responsibility uh, and authority of an elder. It's in terms of these things here. Uh, who can fill this role? What are the, what's the character qualities or the spiritual maturity that is to be displayed? Well, Paul expresses some of that to us in verse 2. He says, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. And if you were with us uh, last week when we talked about uh, Paul's encouragement of men, raising your hands in prayer, right? And not quarreling, not fighting, not arguing. So here, one of the qualities of an elder is not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Verse 4, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his household, his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. That's not my goal today to walk through each of these qualities, but 
some of them self-explanatory, but I do want to comment on just a few of them. And the first one is this, that an elder must be a husband of one wife. Uh, the literal translation here that we could have is a one-woman man, a one-woman man. Uh, I think Paul is addressing, uh, you know, that an elder must not be a polygamist, uh, as was possible in the day, not, not a womanizer or a flirt, uh, not flirtatious toward women, uh, not involved with prostitutes, as we've noted, was part of the context in Ephesus as well as elsewhere uh, in, in the New Testament era, uh, as well as today. Uh, right, So someone who is fully committed to the covenant of marriage and the one flesh relationship of a husband and wife, a faithful man. That's what it means to be a husband of one wife, a one-woman man. It's a heart issue. Uh, it's not just a, hey, uh, you're married you know, um, to, to a woman um, because uh, there may be a man who's married to a woman who does not meet these other qualifications, right? I mean, it could, it's a heart issue. It's a, it's a one-woman man, um, a faithful man. So let me say this, is that we believe here it doesn't require an elder to be married. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul himself was not married. Jesus was not married, right? Uh, and so we're not saying that an elder is required to be married. Uh, as a single person, uh, Paul even states uh, in 1 Corinthians 7 that perhaps... Uh, as a single person, you can be just as effective, if not more, in the kingdom of God because uh, you can give your full attention to the ministry uh, and not uh, have a family responsibilities as well. Um, so uh, singles are certainly um, um, able to serve in this capacity. Um, it doesn't mean that you're only married once. Uh, it could be the death of a spouse and a remarriage it could be divorce. Um, we take that case by case here um, that uh, was the divorce before the person became a believer. Um, is it, uh, you know, how much time has passed? What's the spiritual growth uh, since that point? So it is our position here that divorce does not automatically disqualify someone from serving as an elder or deacon. And so we take that as a case by case Scenario. The issue here that Paul is expressing is that the, this, the elder is to be a man who is a, has a one-woman heart. He's a faithful man to his wife if he's married. Able to teach, he says. Uh, not necessarily in a preaching role, but certainly could include that. Uh, in its basic form, able to teach means that you can explain the scriptures effectively, whether that's one-on-one, -on -one, whether that's in a small group context, that you're able to discern. Uh, one is able to discern false teaching and refute it. Um, and so it may, may not have the gift of teaching or preaching uh, as an elder, um, and, uh, but, but certainly able to, to explain the word of God effectively. Uh, that's a sign of spiritual maturity. So we have elders from among us who preach often. If you've been around here long, you know we have elders uh, who, who preach from time to time. And that's why, because they are to be able to preach. Not all of them uh, fill a preaching role, but certainly all of our elders, I believe, can effectively teach the Word of God in various contexts. And that is part of the uh, re uh, uh, um, responsibility of an elder. Uh, the next one, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For, uh, for if someone does not know how to manage, uh, if someone does not know how to manage his own household, then how will he care for God's church? 
Um, it is reasonable enough to understand what Paul says here, I think. Um, family life is a test of a man's character and spiritual life. Uh, how he leads at home is indicative of how he will lead in the church. Um, and so we need to be mindful of that. Now, I do want to say as well, I don't believe we are to expect the children of elders to be perfect saints, right? To never struggle with sin or to have life all figured out and so on. Um, and I want to pause for a moment. And as now being here almost 14 years and, and uh, primarily our children being raised in this church context, I want to say thank you uh, to you as our church family. Uh, Kelly and I have commented from time to time how much we have appreciated over the years that we have never felt like you have placed an expectation on our children that is unreasonable uh, or that is of a nature that is different than we would anticipate of any child growing in maturity and understanding life. And so I, I just want to pause and say thank you uh, because uh, you, this context for our children I think has truly been a blessing uh, over the years and for Kelly and I as we have raised them here. Um, and so thank you for that. Um, and what we see here is Paul's emphasis really not on the children but on the father who leads his children. We all know children have a will of their own and just because we raised them and trained them in the way of Christ, there is no guarantee that they too will follow Christ. And so um, here the point believing is that what Paul is addressing is that a husband and father know how to raise his children, that he does so effectively, points them well to Christ in his home. Um, does he know how to respond to difficult and challenging situations that arise in his home? That's, that's what he's getting at here, not that an elder's children are to be perfect, right? Um, and one last one I want to comment on. It says he must not be a recent convert. There's some wisdom in that, to not rush someone into spiritual leadership too quickly. Paul says so that they may not become full of pride. And so we watch for faithfulness over time. We don't have a specific length of time that someone must be saved, but we do ask that someone belong to our fellowship for three years before they uh, possibly serve as an elder. So we have some sense of testing uh, their faithfulness over time. I thought you might find it helpful, and again, I know this, is, this message is more instructive than anything, and hopefully you're hanging with me. This is a bit of why we avoid manuals in the first place, isn't it, in life? Because we just kind of, uh, you know, it's just a lot of detail, a lot of stuff, right? So hang with me, but I, but I thought you might find it helpful for us to read uh, part of our Constitution together. What, how do we put this into practice? How do we, again, the question, how do we align ourselves as a local church with what we are understanding to be true of the Word of God? So here's what our Constitution says regarding the purpose and responsibilities of elders. It says, the elder team is responsible for assisting the pastoral staff in the spiritual duties of the church, primarily in matters such as spiritual advice Leadership accountability, church discipline, making disciples, shepherding the flock, setting the vision and direction of the church, and overseeing church doctrine. Furthermore, the elder team is to oversee the spiritual life of the church. This means they are to regularly oversee and give counsel to all current and future ministries of this church and to oversee its administrative affairs and the welfare of its pastors and their families. So that's in a nutshell of what our Constitution says about the responsibilities of an elder as we see it here at Crossroads. Um, what are the qualifications? Well, again, constitutionally, it says an elder shall be a male member of this church who has attended regularly for a minimum of three years 
in good standing and must be a person full of the Spirit and wisdom and able to lead the operations of the church. And of course, the Constitution lists the qualities that we find here as well as places like Titus um, of what, uh, what we should look for in someone who serves in that position. So um, the two specific activities we note here specified to only be fulfilled by men, teaching and authority, we notice are incorporated both into the role of an elder overseer. And so, therefore, it is our practice uh, to reserve this role uh, for the men of the church as we see it aligning with the Word of God. Now, with that, I want to say this as well. Our pastors do not technically serve as part of our elder team uh, constitutionally, except for the senior pastor. That's uh, senior pastor serves as part of the elder team, but we view the positions of elders who really are our volunteer leaders and pastors who are paid or vocational elders uh, they are spiritually equivalent, and so pastors, elders, we see here as, as synonymous, if you will, in the function and in the role in which they play, uh, even though uh, they, we, we, we structure them just a bit differently for accountability and for leadership purposes. Uh, but structurally, these roles um, are a bit different, even though spiritually they are synonymous. So our pastors are invited to attend and participate in every single one of our elder meetings uh, for that reason. Um, and uh, just want you to be aware of that. We also note in the Word that as elders are discussed throughout, there's, it seems to be uh, most often, if not in every situation, there's a plurality of elders. Um, unfortunately, in some contexts, in smaller churches in particular, where there's one pastor, there's a solo pastor, of which I used to, that was my first position, I was a solo pastor, and, uh, and I was viewed as the only elder, per se, I had uh, a deacon, a team of deacons uh, who served with me. Uh, they were seen as the governing board, if you will, of the church, but they were deacons, not elders. Um, so there's been some confusion in the way some of our churches have, have um, used terminology to describe certain roles. It's our conviction here that the elders, pastors are the overseers of the church. Uh, the deacons are those who commit to fulfilling ministry on a daily practical basis. We'll go to that more in a moment. So, are you hanging with me? All right, how, one of the questions, how do we fill these roles at Crossroads? Uh, you might be wondering. Great question. Thanks for asking. All right, so uh, <laughs> we as elders, we prayerfully consider um, who we observe uh, in life and fellowship among the saints, the people of God, who, who we observe that, that meets these qualifications um, what's their reputation outside of these walls? And um, when we uh, see someone filling that, we approach those men and uh, ask them if they uh, would seek the Lord in, in possibly filling this role. Uh, we've had others at times who have expressed interest in this role. They've come and said, man, I, just in my walk with the Lord, I sense maybe this is a, a role that God would have me fill, and we note here, what, what does Paul say? If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. It's not wrong to desire that, right? Humbly to, uh, to, to seek that and to desire that. Um, so, men, I would just say to you, right, if you're listening, like, uh, man, if you sense in your heart that God maybe is, is leading you or, or laying that on your heart to fill this, let us know. Uh, that's happened before, and we prayerfully discern that together, humbly, and say, all right, what's the Lord doing here? 
there's others who we have observed meet every one of these qualifications, but we go, man, the way God has gifted them, it seems like they, 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 they fill the role of deacon, you know, just wonderfully and beautifully in our body. So there's not, there's not a distinction here of value or of importance or of significance in these two roles. It's, it's, a, it's us to collectively together kind of go, all right, who, who among us is to fill this role? Uh, and and to do that humbly and prayerfully. So um, we ask those men to prayerfully consider it. And right now we utilize a book called Effective Empowering Elders, written by Rick Thompson, who's our district superintendent, as a resource to go through with any elder candidate. And then we, um, if we sense that agreement together with the individual, then we present that person or persons to you as a church family two weeks prior to our congregational meeting in, in November. Uh, seeking your affirmation and seeking your prayerful consideration. If you have concern about any one of those people, you are to bring that concern to any of the elders, uh, current elders, uh, and state that to us so that we can be mindful of that and, and work through that. Um, our elders serve a three-year term, and then they take a one-year break, and then after that, there's reaffirmation. There's the affirmation of the body of Christ. And, and listen, I would tell you this. If you're a formal member here at Crossroads, if you've gone through that process of saying, I agree with your doctrinal statement, I'm in, I, I want to belong here in a sense uh, beyond just attending and so on, and, and there are certain roles we have that, that require that membership, so we have some sort of dialogue together uh, of what you believe, then listen, if you're a formal, like, I, w- I would sure hope you sense the 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 the, the uh, responsibility of coming to our congregational meeting and being part of that affirmation of our elders um, to say, man, this is something we do together collectively as the body of Christ to go, yes, uh, we identify these men have these attributes and, and qualities, and yes, they should serve as elders among us um, in that significant role. So, um, you know, just want to, November is our congregational meeting, right? So be there. All right. Um, so that's an elder, and that's just a bit of a foundation for you of, of how we fill that role. What is a deacon? Uh, we'll walk through this quickly. A, a deacon is a servant. The word diakonos literally means servant. Um, that's not a lesser role. That just simply is a term used to meaning someone who helps accomplish the, the work of the ministry in a daily, practical way. Um, there's equal importance and value in this. Who can fill this role? Paul goes on to describe the, the role of an elder, qualifications, if you will, of, an, of a deacon in verses 8 through 15. All right, let's go to 13. It says, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued or a person of integrity, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience uh, and let them also be tested first and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good, un, a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. We'll stop right there. So, uh, so again, qualifications, if you will, for a deacon. Let me show you a, a Venn diagram of, of what we see here for both elder and deacon as qualifications, just to kind of put a visual in front of you. You see on the, in the yellow are the distinctive uh, qualifications of an elder. You see in the blue the distinctive qualifications of a deacon. And in the middle, you see those that kind of are synonymous as they are mentioned in both regards. Um, and so uh, what we want to note here is that um, uh, 
obviously there's some that are said the same, some that are different. And, and we just know what God wants in both of these roles are those whose, whose lives are, are following Christ and show a spiritual trajectory that, that man, there's growth and, and all of that. Um, but there is some distinction as well um, because of the role that is to be filled. And so for us, what we want, to, want you to know is that our ministry team leaders here serve as our deacons. So every year when we have our leadership community stand in front of you, we talk about our ministry team leaders. Those are, are the ones who serve as our deacons. They help us accomplish the work of the ministry in a very practical and effective way. Uh, note as well, like yeah, a deacon is, is not an authoritative role, nor is there teaching that is uh, an expected aspect of that responsibility. Able to teach is, is specifically to an elder. The role of an elder is what carries that authority. So we, we, we do have uh, uh, women along with men serving as ministry team leaders or as deacons here at Crossroads. They serve under the authority of the pastors and elders, and so... That's just a bit of context for you in that. So how do we fill that role? Well, uh, when you affirm elders, you also uh, give to them the, the responsibility to appoint uh, ministry team leaders. So we do not have a congregational affirmation. Um, the elders appoint, prayerfully appoint ministry team leaders um, in those roles. Uh, so... Um, we see some clarity as to what the responsibilities are, what the qualifications are. There's, uh, as well, some room in Scripture for us as to how we function, like how many elders should we have, how often should they meet, what ministry, you know, what ministries should the deacons oversee. There's, God gives to us a, a flexibility in that. We're not prescriptive in that, according to the Word of God. Uh, but we understand what ought to be the, the, the goal and pursuit of a ministry of making disciples, um, and I love how this brings us back to what 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says. And this is where we realize right, the, the personal application in the midst of all of this is to realize you, friend, brother, sister in Christ, if you, if you call Crossroads home, and this is your local church body, listen, it's not just something you have chose, but God has you here for a reason. The scripture tells us that God is the one who orchestrates the members of the body. I think that's a, a local church context, not just universally. And so God has gifted you in a way to build up the body of Christ as it is right here in this local church context. And in 1 Corinthians 12, it tells us there's a variety of gifts, but it's the same spirit. There's a variety of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. God arranged the members in the body, each of them, as he chose Right, so there's variety among us. Uh, you know, the local church is not to be some stale, stagnant, you know, lifeless entity that just brings people together at a given time on a Sunday to, to carry out a service. The body of Christ is to be a living, active body of believers who are full of the Spirit of God, utilizing their giftedness, one, to build up the body of Christ and to make the name of Christ known in the community around them. That's you. That's us. Right? And, and so we have to ask ourselves the hard question. Are we aligning ourselves well with that? Are we fulfilling that which God desires of us as followers of Jesus? And that's not just collectively of do we have elders and deacons but, and how we utilize those roles. But that's you personally, brother, sister. Right? God has created us equally in the image, in his image, male and female. God has equipped us equally with a variety of gifts and a variety of activities that are going to be fulfilled. Like, are you following what God has laid on your heart as a follower of Jesus to fulfill? 
and making his name known in the church and outside the church. May the Spirit strengthen us to do so, amen? And, uh, and let's pray in that regard, and we're going to have the worship team come and lead us in a, in a moment of, of responding in song, and then we have one other thing we're going to finish with today. Father, we love you. We thank you for your kindness. Lord, we, we acknowledge you as our creator, God, uh, and as our creator, you know best. And uh, you know how we are designed. You designed us, Lord. You know how we are to function because that's your right as our creator. And so, Lord, I pray that we would do well to see what you have for us in your word. I pray that our goal as a church, as a local church, would be to reflect your glory, uh, to express your praises, to, 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 uh, to teach the gospel of Jesus Christ, to, to be together a distinct fellowship of people that the world looks at and goes, man, there's something different about what goes on there and their relationships. And uh, so, Lord, may we acknowledge the fact that in all of this, we one day will give an account to you. Uh, so, Lord, may we do well to, to pursue what you have for us and to live in accordance with it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.